The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. You're listening to The Views Room, a Reuters podcast brought to you from the staff of Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. Later in the program, we're going to dish about bumbling corporate espionage efforts of a Swiss bank. But first, we turn to Facebook chief executive Mark Zuckerberg. His public appearances are usually awkward and robotic affairs. But new leaked transcripts reveal a refreshingly candid Zuck. To discuss the latest remarks from the Facebook founder, I have with me my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hello. And I am very excited to introduce our new colleague, Anna Shamansky. Hi, Anna. Hello. All right. So, The Verge, they got a hold of two audio recordings of Mark Zuckerberg's Q&A with employees, and there's a lot to chew over. But let's maybe start with the antitrust stuff, because he kind of addresses this in a way that we haven't really seen him address it before, which is he seems absolutely frightened that Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren is going to win the White House. And if she does, he realizes that she will try and break up his company. And he basically says he will go to the mat against her and will probably win in an antitrust um, fight. What do you guys make of this? Well, I mean, he's probably right in the sense that, A, he's probably right to be concerned. Yeah. He's also probably right when he says that she and a lot of her followers don't entirely understand how a tech company works and what it would actually mean to break it up. You often hear people say, oh, I don't know. You just like take one part of it out. It's fine. They did it with Standard Oil. And he's trying to make the argument that no, actually, that doesn't quite work in this industry. Yeah. And the other thing he does that I thought was interesting, too, was he sort of was explaining that the whole thing about policing content and specifically around uh, election integrity, which is where Facebook got in a heap of trouble, um, that breaking it up would only make that situation worse. It would be harder for them to monitor um, bad actors that are going around on Facebook or Instagram or what have you. But is that really a good argument? I mean, he may or may not be right, but that's, of course, exactly what he's going to say. It's it's what bankers say. It's what comics say. what everyone said when they're forced with faced with the prospect of being broken up. If we're smaller, we can't do as good a job. Well, they've been pretty poor so far. So if you've got to focus on your core business, your core business involves people writing on your platform, then maybe you will focus more on it. Right. But if you're a regulator and you're having to deal with kind of one or two mammoth corporations that you're having to regulate, or if you're dealing with a ton of small guys, it may actually be a little easier for everyone if you are dealing with some larger players. If, if you're doing your job properly, because often you'll, you'll just get co-opted. Well, yes. the, well, the other thing that he really identifies here is that it's two different problems. One is that if you bust up big tech, which is what Elizabeth Warren is trying to do, that sort of addresses the issue of one company with a lot of control over a whole heck of a lot of data, personal data, right? So it's uh, it's hard to argue how that wouldn't help the situation. So Facebook all of a sudden is yeah. split into three and you know they don't have a, a stranglehold on data. But what he's saying is basically policing content, which is a kind of a different discussion. And so in that sense that, yeah, I think you want a lot more resources because you're going to need it. He kind of made, he brought up Twitter and he's like, They're, they have the same issues that Facebook has. Twitter is like a $30 billion company. Facebook is a $500 billion company. Twitter doesn't have anywhere near the same amount of resources it can dedicate to really the same problem that everybody's facing. So in that way, he does make some sense. 
But then again, what he's also saying is that they have this protection right now where they are not liable for stuff that is on their platform with a, with a few exceptions. So what could also happen is perhaps they should be liable for what people are saying on their platform. And I think that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about regulations, even when you're talking about antitrust, I think we have a tendency to focus on how things were done you know, 100 years ago. We don't necessarily focus on with this industry what we should do now. And if you want to change incentives of a company – making them liable for what is actually on there is going to make them actually do their job. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's correct. Although I'm, I'm sure he doesn't want to be liable for what's of actually on his It's better to not be liable and still make money. <laughs> yeah. He just wants to be big. <laughs> um, so one other thing that kind of came out, well, there are a lot of things that came out in this transcript, but another thing that I thought was really interesting was when basically Mark Zuckerberg answered this question about control and this kind of uh, schism that he has. It's like, what do you do? You control this huge company. How do you address um, being a profitable public company and actually doing what's right for society, which you can see how this is an issue. And so basically what he did, and I thought this was fascinating, he, he used an example of when he was young um, or younger, when Facebook was just getting off the ground, and it was around 2006, Yahoo came knocking on the door and offered to buy Facebook for a billion dollars. And Mark Zuckerberg was really torn about this and decided not to go with the offer. And everybody, the investors and um, executives are all like, that's crazy. We can't believe you did this. So he went against the grain. And he uses this as an example of Okay, that was the right decision. I ended up making that the right decision there because clearly now Facebook is huge and Yahoo is basically a tiny Who? little division Who? in Verizon. Who? Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's, he's sort of using this as kind of like, okay, this is how I make decisions. <laughs> this is why, you know, everything that I've done going forward makes sense. And it seems like that's how he kind of frames things. That, and doesn't, I, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it makes, it makes sense as an argument to come up with if you're stuck in a room with someone asking a question. But that doesn't really explain what's happening, why it's happened. It, it, it ignores the many permutations of what could have happened if he'd sold to, to uh, Yahoo!, but it just means he had one decision that he thinks, you know, we were talking about earlier. I think, Anna, this is your point, that, you know, you can make one decision, but who do you know, how do you know if it's luck or judgment? Well, this is, it reminds me of one of my favorite books I read last year, which was Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets. And she really gets into this, this idea that when you're trying to figure out if something was the right or the wrong decision, it's not based on the outcome. It's based on the information that you had beforehand and the level of risk mm-hmm. you were taking and what you did. So if you... If the, if the information you had beforehand suggested that this was a horrible decision, but you did it and it turned out great, it was still a wrong decision. Mm. And the, the, the other side is the same way. And I think what we're seeing here is someone who is stuck in this idea that, well, I made one decision which did ultimately become the correct decision. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that, well, if he follows his gut, he will always make the right decision. Instead, he should think of developing a way of making decisions that's about, you know, updating your priors, you know, that kind of thinking, um, being willing to rethink what you've done before, being ha- encouraging other people to challenge you. Like, those are the type of leaders that tend to last for the long term. Yeah, because if, if he's talking if he's in the context of control, then 
all he's really doing is saying, I, I now believe that whatever I say goes, which is not the way that, that leadership or, uh, works. I mean, it will lead you down the wrong path, which is what we've seen. He's made a lot of missteps over the past yeah, few well, years. Yeah, well, to be fair, he, he didn't say, like, this was, you know, the reason. But I'm just, it was kind of an interesting mm. um, way to look at it. And particularly, he was sort of saying, this is my, this, this validates the reason why I have you know, I own the votes, basically, of Facebook. And it's because of that, I was able to make these kinds of hard decisions. And it gave me confidence to do so. So, um, and and you're right. And he kind of cites something that happened much, much uh, later down the road, which is um, they were looking to clean up the site. And they were noticing that people were uh, clicking on viral videos. And they decided to pull a lot of video off the site and instead try and have people connect with their family and friends. When they did this, Facebook lost about $100 billion in uh, market value because uh, the market didn't like it. And so he uses that as like, okay, this is another reason why um, I have control. And over the long term, um, you know, this helps. And by the way, it's going to end up being profitable regardless because now they're back up again and he thinks that that was the right decision so well is he but, is he putting those two uh, is that actual the causality that i mean do we do we actually believe what he's saying there about the 100 million 100 billion drop being linked to their decision to pull videos isn't it more that they were seen to have really shoddy ability to to, to work out what's going on, on their platform well no i mean I, I think that's true i mean i think that 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 probably spooked investors uh, among other things i mean there were uh, some other yeah, he's putting a lot that. of weight on again a lot of weight on one decision and right? there's clearly a bit of survivorship bias here mm. like I'm sure that internally there were many, many, many decisions that didn't work out so well. Yeah. And but of right. course, it's just that idea that you're he is just focusing on the things that worked out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I which is so. perfectly human, which, you of know, course, and, yeah. and we should say that about Zuckerberg, considering you said at the beginning that he's often seen as being, being, being <laughs> as from I said, animated. <laughs> yes. Right, right. But no, I mean, this is a classic thing you see in, you know, in investors. It's just that this idea that they will focus on the one thing that went right. Mm. And then moving forward, you know, they won't cut their losses. They won't sell their, lo yeah, their losers that yeah. and, you know, disposition effect. And this has really, really negative impacts long term. So I think Mark Zuckerberg may want to kind of rethink this uh, decision system that he has. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, it's, it, it is interesting. And, and mm. you know, we don't know what would have happened if they sold to Yahoo. Um, it could. We should all make a, vid a, a film about it and sell it. it, make it <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Alternative <laughs> history. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I am sure we will be discussing Mark Zuckerberg again. So thank Pretty you. Pretty sure he's going to come up. Yeah. All right. Thank you. A garden party gone south, corporate spies, questionable ethics. Rob Cox, I was under the impression that Credit Suisse was one of the most boring banks in the world. So what happened? Uh, well, you know, it's funny. Zurich has this, you know, the idea of the gnomes of Zurich, as I think some chancellor yeah. of the exchequer once called them, um, were meant to be pretty boring. They're meant to be in, that, in a good way, like predictable, yeah. stable, discreet, right? Not just saying banking secrecy, that's a thing of the past, according to the Swiss and Zurich Bankers Association, but discretion, certainly. So to have this bust up uh, in full blow and, in, in you know, in, chronicled in the papers in 
the normally staid, boring papers of Switzerland. Yes, R- Rob Cox is an avid reader of the Neuertücher Zeitung and other such wonderful. Well pronounced, but no, but the, you know they had this this bust up between uh, T. John Tiam, who's the CEO of Credit Suisse, okay. and one of and this young Turk. Uh, actually, he's not Turk. I think he's of Pakistani descent, but he's Swiss. Iqbal Khan, who has been running their wealth management business, doing gangbusters there. The two of them didn't hit it off. There was a party. Uh, I think it was at at uh, Tiam's house, and there was a bit of a a bit of a problem related, I think, to shrubbery. Okay, so are they neighbors? Because this, neighbors. Is, this is where I was confused. Neighbors. They're literally neighbors in okay. a sort of Tony suburb of Zurich. Okay. Um, but it, but the, what this highlights in many ways, this is antithetical to the whole idea, as you mentioned at the outset, of, of, of Swiss bankers being discreet, yeah. stable, predictable, and boring. And let's just say, let's, let's just keep this to the Swiss part of the bank, because certainly um, both UBS and Credit Suisse have had many problems outside of Switzerland oh, yeah. with their investment banks. It's always but the Americans just, or the Brits yeah. or somebody else, but in the investment bank, someone who... But wealth management, wealth? okay, we've had issues there, of course, as well with all of the, uh, okay, the problems but, with tax but, evasion. But, 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 let's, so let's let me go give back, you a quote from the Zurich Banking Association. Okay. They have a, a website, and on it they talk about, um, about all the great things, facts and figures of Zurich, Swiss banking in Zurich in particular. It says, the common goal for all those involved must be to position the financial center as stable. Um, and forward-looking, blah, blah, blah. But there is this is not a picture of stability. So it's created... I, I happened to be in Zurich on Thursday and Friday and talked to a bunch of bankers and people in the, in the industry. And, you know, there is a sense of real um, embarrassment about this thing. It's not good when you're going around the world to the billionaires in Malaysia and wherever yeah. to say, hey, look, give me half a billion dollars. I'll discreetly manage it and make some money for you. And you're like, wait, you got just caught in a spy scandal. I mean, literally, they were spying on this guy, Iqbal Khan, in, in the most terrible fashion. I think the three of us could do a better job of it. <laughs> okay. Because he, he, he saw them. And, and well, his, his, yeah. so Iqbal Khan's line is, I, I saw them and I went over there and we had a bit of a dust up. Okay. And right. they're, they're, they're and he, took the can, he took a picture of them. Then the guy took the ca- camera. It's all disputed, by the way. Right. There's a dispute. And, but even Credit Suisse has put out this press release this week that said the mandate for the observation of Iqbal Khan was wrong and disproportionate and has resulted in severe reputational damage to the bank. Now, this is a, a statement they put out after deciding not to fire T. John yeah. because they determined that he they didn't had an, know. Is this an internal investigation? Internal inv- well, they had a law firm called Homburger yeah. yeah. um, do it. Um, and, and they determined that it was the chief operating officer who had, of course, who had uh, licensed these, this group called Investigo to do it. He has been fired along with their chief uh, head of global security services. And it's for, the, for the moment, it has ring-fenced T. John right. from the scandal, which they have now admitted has. Although it's great it's hard, right? Because the COO, so Pierre Olivier uh, Bowie, he he's basically hitched his coat, hitched himself I mean, to, like right to Thiam's coattails for fifteen years he's, as he's gone from place to place. From, they were both McKinsey guys. They both are enarchs. You know, went to the Ecole Nationale mm-hmm. d'Administration, the elite uh, school in France. Um, they worked together at Aviva. Then the the British insurer. Yep. Then they moved on to Prudential, where uh, T. John was the CEO. And then when T. John in 2015 went to Credit yep. Suisse, he came over as chief operating officer. So now you could make the case that oh my God, they're so joined at the hip. How could they not know? The other point you could say if people who know each other that well don't need to discuss some of these things, they know what they <laughs> okay, want. Okay, so so let's just let's just recap this very quickly here because I'm still trying to process this. You want to go thing. to a garden garden party? Right? I want to go to a garden party. Like wait a minute. So they're arguing over so whatever. Picture January. There's a little snow on the on the on the banks of Lake. Zurich, and there they are at this beautiful place, people in well-tailored suits and nice dresses, they're drinking really nice French champagne, and it, and, and somehow Iqbal has a conversation with T. John's partner, 
girlfriend, wife, uh, about some adjoining property because they were right next door and right. some shrubbery. So then this seems to and spiral. Up, and there was like a confrontation. Out of control, right? And this guy is amazing. This is earlier in the year. This is earlier in the year. And <laughs> at this point, their relationship is spoiled. So then Urs Rohner, who's the chairman of Credit Suisse, is basically brought in to find away an amicable agreement that lets Iqbal leave. The Got problem it. is they only give him a three-month gardening leave. Okay. Uh, so which, does... which sounds normal, right? <laughs> Do you like the gardening? Oh, very amusing, yes. Right. So he gets his gardening. gnome in their garden? <laughs> yes, I hope so. So he gets his gardening leave. It seems like, all right, this yes. guy's out the door. He was a, He's a real talent, a real star, but they needed to, to make we the situation get, better. Yeah. Okay. It was one or the other, basically. But basically, they weren't going to get rid of T. John. So, but this is important. So, this guy decides to go to UBS. Oh, he's talking to rival, everyone. So right? Julius Baer wants to bring him in. Okay. He does a whole presentation. Lombard Odier is another private bank. Goldman Sachs apparently was courting him aggressively. But then UBS, which is run by uh, Sergio Armonti, who's going to be 60 next year, needs some successors or some candidates. Um, they snap him up and they give him this big job. Okay, so this is presumably why then they decided to right, sick so some private agents they sick on the this agency guys. Investigo okay. on him because they they want to basically. My view about this is that they. They wanted to catch him doing something that would have been a breach of his agreement, like talking to subordinates, former subordinates at Credit Suisse. But apparently UBS was well aware that this might happen. I'm guessing Credit Suisse isn't the only one that employs various <laughs> security well, services. Wait, wait, wait. What was the name of the service? Because I, I, I Investigo. thought... I was like, is this from the Simpsons they're episode? They're best known for like catching deadbeat on insurance claims. People, you know, who like say, oh, I've hurt my back and then they're out skiing the Investigo, next day. Investigo, that's awesome. Investigo. <laughs> but, but so they, I think my supposition is that they wanted to keep an eye on him and see if he breached the agreement in some way that then would allow them in some way to impede his progress going over to UBS, which remember, this is the other thing to pull back. There's 400,000 people in this little town in Zurich. There's no place quite like it where you have two of the biggest, most influential investment and uh, banks and investment managers, private banks in the world. Like literally, you can throw a an Omega watch from Credit Suisse headquarters and hit someone walking into UBS. Um, they're right down the street. Okay. And, and there's, it's not like New York here where you've got, you know, everybody's kind of yeah. based here and fighting mm. it. There's nothing quite like it. And I, so I think that gives you a sense of how this has brought such has, – has riveted the Zurich financial community. So where does this leave Credit Suisse then? Because this is egg on the face of – their yeah. CEO, I would say. And their say. chairman. And their chairman for that. Yeah. I, well, Urs Rohner, who's been the chairman, I think, for something like eight years and has maybe another year or two left, um, you know, I think it's going to be really difficult for T. John to become the chairman of the bank. I think uh, this is a stain on him, no doubt, um, even though, of course, they've said that he knew nothing about it and was not involved. I think it's going to be difficult for him. It reminds me of what happened with uh, News Corp and uh, James Murdoch. Right. So yeah. He was tainted yeah. by the scandal, the, the spying yeah. scandal, uh, even though he may not have been the you know perpetrator, as it were. It right. just it, And I think that, that this will, to, to some degree, do that. Um, so that craze, raises question about the chairman, the, the role of the chairman. But T. John, for the moment, as I think Chris Thompson wrote, um, the, the title of our story about T. John getting off, off the hook on Monday was Teflon TM. So he's pretty Teflon, and it seems like he'll be at the top of the bank for some time to come. All right, Rob, that was a great story. <laughs> Thanks for taking us through. Thanks for having me. 
That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Anna Shemansky and Rob Cox, and hats off to our producers, as always. Those this week were Lauren Miller and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Do subscribe to The Viewsroom and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasts. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. <laughs>